Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 14th of March 2022 and this is episode 246. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I talk to archaeologist, historian and author Andy Robertshaw about his work at the Centre for Experimental Military Archaeology in Kent. Andy and colleagues have just constructed a new set of First World War trenches and he talked to me about how this new installation will help educate about the Great War. He spoke to me from a trench in Kent. Andy, welcome back to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Oh, well, uh, where do you start? Um, my grandfather served between 1916 and 1918, wounded twice, gassed twice. Um, my maternal grandfather smashed his leg in training um, at Catterick in 1918, so he didn't go. My grandmother um, missed being blown up uh, a uh, Bombo when it blew up in December 1916 because she wasn't on shift. And um, my maternal grand, uh, granddad's sister, Lily, my daughter, by the way, is called Lily, um, uh, lost her fiance in 1914. So I grew up in a world in, in Leeds where the Great War was current affairs rather than anything else. I then went to work at the Army Museum, having taught First World War in, in school. And more and more of my life was taken up with the Great War. It's as simple as that. It grew on me, although I have to be honest, I I got into this interest in military history through the English Civil War, through the sealed knot in English Civil War society. So I've sort of segued sort of one way over time. Hopefully forward in time. Now, we're going to talk about the Centre for Experimental Military Archaeology, which you are involved in. Now, can you tell us what this is, where it is and what is its purpose? The purpose of the CEMA, Centre for Experimental Military Archaeology, is in fact to reflect the history of the ridge on which we sit. And we're at the showground, the Kent showground at Detling, just off the A249. Um, We discovered the site and then we did some research, discovered there's a Roman signal tower on the the ridge, three Martin Bailey castles, including one belonging to Bishop Odo. It was the Chatham land front from 1914 in case of an imperial German invasion, a Royal Naval Air Service Detling, then REF Detling, very involved, horribly, I'm afraid, on the 13th of August 1940 in the Battle of Britain and didn't go out of use until 1968. So we've got about 2,000 years of military history and many of the vestiges of that um, military occupation, I suppose, are still with us from pillboxes to Mott and Baileys to, frankly, trenches that we're going to explore. Now, obviously, we're talking about the First World War. So what First World War related constructions have you got there? Well, we've actually got a whole variety of trenches, a maze of them, some of which may have been built in the Great War and then reused in the Second World War. We're going to explore those. But we've managed to avoid trashing anti-archaeology by picking an area that was previously used for, frankly, uh, paintballing, actually. Uh, we found evidence of that. Um, and they'd begun a little system of trenches. So what we did is that we translated that into a copy of a piece of front line 
British and German in railway wood near Ypres, which which many people will know, um, on the basis that actually the ground up there is clay. It's clay Ypres. There's no point trying to pretend we're on the Somme. So I suppose if we're pretending anything, we're pretending to be in Belgium, but with the correct geology and, of course, the correct trees, to be honest. And what time period from the First World War do these date from? Okay, we've actually built a system that dates roughly to 1917. I wrote a book about 10 years ago called 24-Hour Trench, also set in railway wood. I have a passion for that place. Um, And... 1917 is of real interest because it's the culmination of the development really of of trench systems, uh, both British and German, of course, later on will be an open warfare, but actually just predating that great uh, onslaught, which we now know as as, uh, the the Passchendaele offensive, the, the third battle of Ypres. So somewhere really between the spring of 1917 up until 31st of July. So we've placed it quite carefully. So what have you got there? Have you got two sets of opposing trenches with a bit of no man's inland in the centre? How did you guess? Yes, of course. Uh, Complete with latrines uh, and other things. But what we're also going to do is that we've been incredibly fortunate that people have come to us and said, oh, Seema, would you like an Anderson shelter? I know that's Second World War, but we got one of those from not very far the road down from us. We picked it up in a van and brought it to us, having taken it apart. We're going to build that for our Second World War experience. But for the First World War, we actually found a, a rarity, which is called the Moy pillbox m-o-i-r he was the uh, supervising engineer uh, at richborough military port and he designed a pillbox system that could be built in a night it goes together like lego blocks and we found pieces on a beach uh, which upset thanet council um and then we found through a program on meridian um uh, thank you very much Derek johnson we actually then found a, a, a whole load of pieces in a yard and they'd been there since the end of the war and we were able to get them brought to site travis perkins said how much have you been quoted to move it 1800 quid do you have 1800 quid no we'll do it for free so we are very fortunate to have some lovely friends so in the summer spring summer we are going to build a replica well is it a replica if it's a real thing no it's not is it so we are building it And the argument would be that they were built in France and Belgium. They were also built in the UK. And uh, we're just going to basically put it in to show what it would look like if we were indeed in railway wood. Some were built in the area, but if they could be popped together in one night, it doesn't take long for a farmer to take them to pieces and use it for something else. So there aren't many left. Do I take it this is a bit like Lego that you sort of um, you sort of build your pillbox out of uh, numbered numbered parts and you you, you construct it yeah. a bit like yeah. each like piece a- is the same. It's curved uh, and it, it was locked together by the the press of the, the the earth outside it. It has a metal cupola on top, so anybody with any metal workshop in, uh, uh, um, information for us, we'd love to hear from you. And it would normally take inside it a, a Vickers suspended from the ceiling, or it could take a, a Lewis gun or a, a Hotchkiss. And we we have got a Lewis gun, but for demonstration purposes, it will probably will get a, a replica Vickers to go inside it. And the whole thing is like a turret on a tank. It actually revolves. It's manual. Uh, there's only two people in it. It's not very big, but it will be absolutely unique. 
And how are these experiments helping us understand the Great War? Well, it's it's very straightforward stuff. One is a question of, of construction. How do you build a trench? People will be familiar, I suppose, with Yorkshire Trench with their A-frames, uh, which are actually on the surface to show how they work. Well, where we are, we've put them in correctly, the A-frame system with trench boards, um, and then we've built our sandbags. I was very fortunate a few years ago, a few, 35, 40 years ago now, to be beasted by an ex-major of Royal Engineers when I built a sandbag structure for the Bath and West show. He said, who built this? I went, I did, sir. Take it down. I'll share to do it properly. And it turns out he built trenches around Epa. So we're using that combined with my experience of archaeology. So it's not just the manuals. It's not just the photographs. It's not just the film. It's practical. And that's what we're about. So it, it, it's silly stuff, really. Like, how long does it take to build hurdles? Because hurdles were used in the construction in railway wood. Strangely, they were also used on the Chatham land front. So I suppose the people in Kent would learn the techniques and go to France and Belgium and build them there. But we've had some lovely things come up, one of which was we found that um, in archaeology, we found a green enamel mug. Right, Bear with me. It doesn't sound very important. And the director said, you know, how was this lost? Was the, the owner wounded or killed? No idea. And we just left it at that. Later on, what happened was when we did an experiment, we actually gave people a combination of white and green enamel mugs because we, we know white ones were shooting, so were green. And next morning, when all the mugs came back, they did 24 hours, but there were no green mugs. And I asked the two guys who had them, where did the green mugs go? And they said, we chuck them away. They're utterly useless. You can't find them in the dark. And when someone fills it up, you burn your fingers. So why did we find a green mug in a trench at Forward Cottage? I think someone threw it away and nicked a white one. And it, it, it doesn't seem, it's not going to change our knowledge of the world, but it's the sort of thing that nobody ever bothered to ask about. You know, what colour mug did you like? You know, why did you prefer to have apples rather than oranges? And we may want to gloss over that. But they're the kind of things that we're talking about and doing. We're also cooking and building. And this um, coming weekend, um, and I'm saying this now quite a, a way ahead of when this is broadcast, we've got a group of, of reenactors who are not doing any battles. They are simply going to spend 48 hours in the trench. And we are providing the catering for them as it would have been done in 1917. The lads cook their own breakfasts, but main meals made behind the lines are brought forward. So we're trying that out. There's a lot going on. Does this give us an idea of of the the acoustics in a trench, the smell of a trench? And actually, being in a trench, you can't see anything. And that sort of loss of sense of place. Absolutely. I mean, we're we're littered with trench signs because people then find their way round. Because frankly, you know, as you said, if you pop your head up to try and get your bearings, you don't live very long. So actually, your whole world is bounded by basically mud and and the the trench walls and what's left of trees. And we, you know, we've, we've managed to cut a number of trees down uh, quite ethically, by the way. We're in an area that has to be pollarded regularly. Uh, we didn't just wreck them. Um, but the key thing then is that, that when you're in a trench, you are much more aware 
of, of how sheltered you are, for example, from the wind and the rain than you would expect. And at night, when we did a little experiment a while ago, I thought the lads were just having a laugh because they at night said, oh, look at that. The stars. Oh, doesn't it make you feel small? And I thought, oh, no, what's all this about? But if, then I realized that, that very few of us at night go out and look at the stars. But if you're in a trench, the, the sky is incredibly big and it's, it's full of all sorts of things, including we saw a shooting star, I have to say. And people get quite philosophical in a way that you wouldn't expect as part of a trench experience, you know. And how do you deal with drainage? Oh, you dig sumps and you drain it down to one spot. And if you have to, you pump it out. It's as simple as that. We, we do have problems. And we, we have an area which, frankly, filmmakers love because it floods. They love it. We hate it because it's, you know, we, we the, the guys at the time would have done everything they could to keep their feet dry. And by 1917, trench foot is regarded as a mad, matter of discipline, i.e. if you get trench foot, something's wrong with your office because they're not in, in basically enforcing all the drills draining the trenches and doing everything else so we've been able to buy a couple of original trench pumps that we're using uh, just to show how it was done and the trench pumps that we've got curiously came from the Epes salience i suspect they were just lost in the mud at the end of the war um, but they still work and we can pump water it's great and do you have lots of sort of telegraph um, wires going across? Because that always seems a real hazard. When, when you look at films, you've got all these communication wires and people going under them or over them. And, you know, if you cut them, it, you yeah, lose. Yeah, absolutely. We've got telephone wires in place. At the moment, they're not actually uh, linked in, but we do have a set of telephones. So at some point in the near future, we want to make the whole thing work to actually have a telephone system that actually functions. A, a, a while ago, I did an experiment on my original trench at Charlwood, and uh, we had a telephone there. And in the middle of the night, we actually sent a message from behind the lines, actually to me, um, in a tent, um, saying that Brigade wanted to know what the number, the serial number was on the latrine bucket. Um, it, it was a complete wind up. There are no serial numbers on latrine buckets, but it's the kind of thing that would irritate officers and obviously ultimately the sergeant who was sent with the torch to look for it in the real thing. But we made them do reports four times a day, you know, and the officer who thought was going to have an easy time found it very, very rough. Um, and, you know, it, there were some real problems. And do all the sort of same problems come up when people sit in these trenches for periods of time, like boredom actually being cold and, you know, yeah. things that you you think we've never, most of us never experienced in our life because we live no, a nice life. I, I think the point is that you sleep in the afternoons, you work at night. Uh, people, you know, the BBC websites for children saying, you know, the soldiers woke up and did a stand to. No, they didn't. They've been working in relays all night. One man on guard one man resting, one man working, that's the way you do it. And you, you go on guard after you've been working because you've warmed up, you know, that's the, that's the way to do it. And you're going to do that I mean, at the moments from what would be about 5.30 through to about 6.30. So you've, you've got about 13 hours of that going on. So you are busy bunnies. And then during the day, breakfast, basically have to stand to, rum ration, of course, clean up, inspections, lunch, sleeping, 
then you're soon round to 5.30. But at the end of four or five days, basically, you're lucky to get four or five hours sleep a night. Sorry, my correction, four or five hours sleep a day, even with resting, you are pretty useless. So you would be almost a liability at that point, which is why you're relieved. And I had one uh, journalist come, wear a uniform for a, a, a night. In the middle of the night, he came off guard duty. There was no end. We had a pretend enemy. And I said, do you want some baked beans? Because I heated them up for him. And he went, oh, I don't know. I don't like baked beans. I went, look, get your spoon out. Spoon was in his pocket, your racing spoon. Try these. And he ate them. And he went, oh, they're lovely. And I don't like baked beans. Why is this? I went, because it's snowing. You've been awake for about 18 hours and any hot food tastes great. And he said, this living in a trench isn't about being gassed or blown up. It's just about surviving, isn't it? And I went, yeah, that's the lesson we're trying to get across. And how do you deal with aspects of sanitation? Um, depends how authentic we want to be. We have two latrine buckets and we do have pits we can dump into um, and we have Jay's fluid and we have a box to put our latrine in. And if you don't bring your own toilet paper, you've got a problem because there isn't any. Um, it depends how much you want to push it and how soon after we finish, we've got a school group in, you know, because we've, we've got to be aware of that. Um, but frankly, just even having a latrine bucket with some screwed up paper in it, um, frankly, some liquid, which is normally just water with Jay's fluid in it. People take the lid off and smell it. We don't have to do any more than that to be evocative of that real experience. And for the guys that, that then come into the trench, they will always say, well, who's going to empty the latrine bucket if they're going to use it you know, as an experiment? One of you, you need to pick a latrine orderly. They will wear a yellow armband and they can't help in the kitchens. Uh, but that is their job. Oh, by the way, they're excused guard dudes because it's a really important job. And nine times out of ten they go i didn't know this job existed well no it's oddly you know if you're a, a a latrine orderly in the army and you come back after the war and your wife says you know what was it like in the trenches what did you do you're not going to really give up an honest answer are you in the same way as the guys who were cooks and that's one in 50 of all soldiers one in 50 151 in 100 didn't come home after the war and say darling you're not going to believe it i've learned how to cook you put your feet up i'll go in the scullery you know they came back and said, I don't want to talk about it. So these are jobs that just don't exist in most people's understanding of the war. Now, can the public come and visit this trench? They can indeed. We're not open every day. We're open either for booked groups or our next big open day is Easter Monday, which is the 18th of April. We're open on that day from 10 until probably four o'clock, the last tour around four o'clock. So we're finished for five o'clock. This is free. We're trying to encourage people to come and visit and put them off. Loads of parking. Sorry, we've got modern loos just so people know they don't have to use a latrine bucket. Um, we'll have catering on site and it's in return for a donation. And we've also got a, a book sale going on because people have given us a lot of books to sell. So basically it's, it's just money to buy sandbags timber all the things that we need and where can people find out where to come and more information about sema 
SEMA has its own website, the Centre for Experimental Military Archaeology. SEMA, look us up, you'll find us. We're about to have a brand new website. Uh, by the time you hear this, it will be up and running. It will be all bells and whistles. If anybody runs into problems, I am Andy at andyrobertshaw.com. So we, we've got that as a fallback. Andy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>